So we're, we're in this series of messages. We've been talking about what is. What if everyone gave? What would the world, what would the church, what would we specifically as a church look like if everyone gave? And last week we talked about what if everyone loved and, and really loved the way that the Bible teaches us that we're supposed to love. And this morning it brings us to what if everyone served? What would it, our circumstances look like and, and how would things change if we really served the way the Bible teaches us to serve? Now, how many of you know that, that we live in a society that teaches the opposite of that, right? We like to be served, right? I remember a few years ago, I was on an, an, uh, on an airplane flying somewhere, and it was one of the first times that they ever had wireless internet available on a plane. And they were talking about, we now have wireless internet on a plane. I had never seen this before. And the, the guy sitting next to me, we're both like, oh, this is pretty cool. And so like, so everyone gets free Wi-Fi today. You know, as, as we, we try this out and we do it. And, and like, man, this is so cool. So everyone pulling out their computers and their tablets and all that stuff. And then everybody's trying to get online. And then here we are at, you know, 30,000 feet at 500 miles an hour flying across the sky. And we're on the internet. It's amazing, Right. About 30 minutes into the flight, though, the, the flight attendant comes on the speaker and says, like, hey, we're really sorry, but we're experiencing some technical difficulties with our internet, and so it's going to be down for the rest of the flight. Now, the guy next to me responds like this. He's like, unbelievable. And he, like, like slams his laptop closed, and you hear all this murmuring and complaining around the plane of, like, this is just... Typical, typical Delta. This is typical Delta. You know, just, uh, and, and I want to be like, hey, you know, like 45 minutes ago, none of us even knew that this existed. <laughs> and now suddenly, 40 minutes later, we're entitled to have internet on the airplane. So the second they give us something, it now becomes like an entitlement of something that we get. And we're like, oh, they're just not serving me the way I want you know. And everybody's murmuring, complaining about how for two hours... They can't check their Facebook on a plane at 30,000 feet at 500 miles an hour traveling across the country with something that previously would have taken days or months depending upon what era in life that you want to look at. But that's not good enough for us that you can fly from L.A. to New York in like five hours. No, because we have this desire to be served, right? Another great example, these little things. These are great devices, aren't they? They're fun. They're interesting. They do all kinds of crazy stuff. Do you know that what you hold in your hand is exponentially more powerful than what we landed on the moon with? And you carry this in your pocket on a daily basis. I remember growing up, we had one phone in the house when I was a kid, and it sat in the kitchen. It was one of those ugly yellow ones. Remember those? With the rotary that you hated everyone in your life that had nines, right? And you would have to extend the phone all the way out, you know, and go to another room because it had 40 foot of that, you know, cord on it. You would wrap it around the walls as you were trying to, you know, get privacy to talk to your friends or whatever you were doing, right? Yeah. It, or you had to use a pay phone if you were out and you needed to call somebody. Remember those days? Well, yeah, now we can just whatever, whenever, however. We can post pictures. We can post our opinions on Facebook and Twitter and all that fun stuff. Pictures of cats and videos of animals and all kinds of crazy stuff. Right in the, right in the palm of your hand. But how many of you 
have done this before. You're out and you're doing something and your phone doesn't quite do what you want it to do. What's your response? Stupid phone. I hate this phone. This phone's a piece of garbage. Like, oh, right? How many of you have ever been there? Don't be shy this morning. Raise your hand. Some of you probably did it this morning on the way to church. Hopefully you weren't using your phone in the car because that's technically against the law in Illinois, you know. But we've all done that because we have this, we have this like society that says like, I want to be served. We want it. We want it now. We want it right this second and we want it to be perfect and we don't want anything to get in our way to stop what we're going to do. And like, that's the way that our society has become. In everything, it's about how are you serving me? How are you going to best serve me? How are you going to meet my needs? How are you going to do this? How is this going to do? And so we base everything that we have on this, on this, this ideology or this attitude of how can we be served? And so this morning, we want to talk about what does the Bible say about serving and how our heart should be and how we should have an attitude of serving. There's this great violinist named Niccolo Pagini that lived in the 1700s in Italy, and he was like the best violin player in the world. And he had this beautiful handcrafted violin that was made just for him, and it was like, they say like maybe like the best violin ever created. But he had, this, he had this stipulation that when he died, that his prized violin would go to this museum and it would be put under glass. And the stipulation was it was to never be played again. It could never be played again. So they put it in this museum. They put it under glass. And what began to happen is over the years, it began to deteriorate. It began to break down. It began to get eaten by worms and stuff even. Because it wasn't handled, because it wasn't played, because it wasn't doing what it was created to do, it started to deteriorate. And you know, our lives and our spiritual gifts and the things that God has given us and created us with the purpose to use in his kingdom are a lot like that violin. If we put them in a museum and we put them under glass and they're never handled and they're never used, they'll begin to deteriorate. Our souls begin to deteriorate. Our spirit begins to deteriorate. We're not doing what God has called us to do. And so this morning, let's, we want to talk about not being put under glass in the museum, that we're actively involved in serving and what God's doing. In Ephesians chapter number four, Jesus begins this, this, this picture of what servanthood really looks like. Let's pick up this story in Ephesians chapter four, verse number 11. It says this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. Okay, now there's a couple of key things in the scripture. Number one, the word ministry in that scripture is is probably best translated as service. In other words, how we serve. So what what the what this scripture is really saying, what Paul's really saying here, is he's saying that the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers are here to equip the saints for the work of service. Now, what's interesting also is who who did he say that their job was to equip? What does it say? The saints. Who are the saints? You. You are the saints. And so what we are supposed to be doing as a church and and, and the way God's kingdom works is those that he gave to teach and to train and to be apostles and shepherds, all that. What their goal is, what their calling is, is not just to stand up or not just to do all the work, but their job actually is to release you and equip you 
in what you're called to do, because it says that very plain and very clear, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the work of service. So our job as a church, our focus as a church has got to be part of it to equip you to do what God has created and what God has called you to do, because God has given each and every one of us different gifts. He's given us different abilities, different talents that he gave us so that we can invest them in his kingdom. And so for us as a church to accomplish all that God has for us, we have to be a part of what he's doing and also fulfill our part. And it says in verse 16, when each part is working properly, that it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So it takes each part, it says joined and held together. Right? So when each part of us comes together and does what we're supposed to do, then we kind of become this whole entity that has the ability to be who and what God has called it to be. But each and every part is absolutely important. It's absolutely important that we become the whole. There's three biblical principles that we want to look at this morning that are really the heart of why we serve. Uh, And so we're going to look at these three things. So if you're looking for notes to jot down, you can jot this down this morning. Number one, Jesus calls us to follow him into a life of serving others. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter number 13. John chapter number 13, we're going to begin in in verse 3. And and this this is this great picture that Jesus gives us of really what serving is all about. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This passage really goes to the heart of what biblical serving is all about. Jesus understands that God has given him all authority. That he's God's son, that he, he is part of the Trinity, that he is, he is God. And that and he came, though, to serve. And so what he does is, is he creates this picture with the disciples that what servanthood and how important servanthood really is to the heart of God. Now, you have to understand what this meant to wash someone's feet. You know, I think feet are gross, period. I don't like my feet, and I definitely don't like your feet. Okay, so I would not have been very good at being a, a servant back then in this, in this way because feet, I think, they're just gross, all right? But here's the thing. So, you know, when we do our plays and we do our movies even of Bible times, everyone has these nifty little leather sandals on, you know? Um, that's not really that accurate. Most people back then, the common people, didn't have shoes because they couldn't afford them. That was something that the wealthy people Um, enjoyed were shoes. So most of these disciples and these people that Jesus came in contact with would have been like him. They would have been walking around barefooted. So you can imagine how gross their feet were walking around those dusty roads in Israel. And there was a lot of animals that they used to do things back then. And then there was a lot of people, you know, around too. And they didn't have indoor plumbing back then. So it was just kind of like wherever, you know, And so they would walk, you know, in and around and through all of this kind of stuff. So you can imagine what was caked on the bottom of these dudes' feet. 
And so what Jesus does is he, he humbles himself. And this is like the, the most lowly thing that you could do in their culture was wash someone's feet. And so this is how Jesus really, he wants to portray to them, to show them how important this attitude of servanthood was. This is God. This is Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And what is he doing? He's washing these guys' dirty feet to show how important servanthood is and what biblical serving is all about. So Jesus lowers himself to do this lowly job. And then we, we see if we continue to read in John 13, in, in verse 12, this is where he starts to instruct the disciples and us today. And he says this, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, Jesus isn't literally telling them to wash each other's feet. He's giving them a picture of what servanthood looks like. And he says that you tell me that I'm your master, you tell me that I'm the teacher, that you call me the Messiah, that you call me the Son of God. And he's saying, just as I have humbled myself and I have served you, he says, do you understand what I just did? Do you understand the point that I'm trying to make? What, and, and he's trying to, um, to get over to them that the idea of God's kingdom is not about us, but it's about how we serve others. That God has placed us in this world to serve other people, that we lay down our pride, that we take up our towel, and that we serve. And Jesus calls us not, on, not only to, um, to imitate his actions, but also to imitate the heart with which he did what he did. Number two is this, serving others is God's path to a great life. Now, first let's go ahead and get this out of the way when we say the word great life, okay? Contrary to what you may hear from uh, people on TV, when God said, we say that God wants you to have a great life, that doesn't mean that God wants you to get everything that you want, right? So what does a great life look like? And God does want you to have a great life. He does. He created you with a purpose and a plan to have a great life. The catch is the great life that he wants you to have is the life that he's called you to, not the life that you want. So what would, what would some of us consider would be a great life this morning? Would we say that we've obtained a great life when we have everything that we want, when we have enough money, when we have a position, a title, a promotion, um, Whatever, a legacy, a name that we do something so big that everyone remembers us throughout the time and history, that our place is secured. Is that what would be a great life? But you see, the thing is, is that most of the things that we think about when we think about having a great life are actually contradictory to what God is teaching us that we should be about. And there's something inside each and every one of us called sin. And because of this sin, it gives us something that there's this Latin phrase for that I think is is probably the best way to depict this. And it's called incurvatious insane. And what it means is the inward curve of sin. So it means that in each and every one of our lives, we have this, this goal, we have this desire that we take everything around us and we curve it or point it back inwardly to ourselves. And we say, okay, how does this affect me? What does this do for me? What's the bottom line for me? And it basically takes everything that there is and it points it back into yourself. Because we are naturally selfish people. 
and we want to get what we want. So we had this inward bend, if you would, of sin. In Matthew 20, 26, Jesus said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And see, when we hear words like great, and when God says, I want you to have a great life, and if you're going to be great, you know, then you, what we immediately do is we take these things that we find in God's word and this natural bend inside of each and every one of us, we start to turn it inwardly and we start to go, okay, what do I think great is? And then how do I obtain this greatness, right? Because everything in our life is about how we get to where we want to be. Everything that we do in life is about that. You wake up in the morning and you have, you have things that you have to accomplish, right? So you start to make a plan and you start to take steps to get to where it is that you want to be. And so we do the same thing when we see these things in God's word. When we hear God talking about a great life or, or things like this, we go, okay, I want this great life. And so it says that I have to serve. So it means that I have to do this in order to get to this level of greatness that I want, but what Jesus is actually saying, what the Bible is actually teaching us, that the whole fact that we're a servant is what makes us great, is what makes our life great, not trying to obtain something. We're always looking for those steps to get where we want to be. That natural bend, that incurvacious and say that always bends everything back inwardly for us to ultimately get what we want. But God's path to a great life is lived in service to others. There's a lot of people that have served throughout the, the annals of history that have, that have served behind the scenes and done things that people don't even understand. And there, there's this great book by this guy named Shea, uh, Shane Claiborne. And he was this, this college student who, um, who went and interned in India with Mother Teresa in her ministry in India. And it's, a, it's actually a really big book, um, but it's this amazing story of how him and his friends, they had to basically almost take apart block by block their, their culture of being an American and what we're accustomed to and, and the things, the way we live and the way we think and the way we act. They had to just day by day kind of take another block away of that and replace it with something else. And so they really began to see firsthand this real, this this biblical principle of serving that it's about other people and not you. And one of the things that Mother Teresa's ministry did was she had these, this ministry to leper colonies. And yeah, the same leprosy from the Old Testament and the New Testament, the same thing. Awful, awful disease. And what they do is they put these people in these colonies because it's, it's very contagious and you can get it if you come in contact with, with these people. So they, they basically put them away in isolation in these communities together. And these people basically just stay there and wait to die. And their loved ones and their families and everyone, just they have to abandon them. And so when, when Shane and his, and his group, they go to this leper colony for the first time and they're completely freaked out that they're going to this leper colony. And he says, you know, they kind of hang out in the background in the shadows and they just they don't want to get too close to anything or anybody. And they see Mother Teresa leading the way and she walks into this leper colony and she just begins to hug people. She begins to hug them and, and touch them and talk to them. And the thing that's amazing is most of these people, they would begin to weep. Because they, it had been so long since they had any contact with another human being that someone showed them affection or showed them love or, or showed them they cared. And so they had gone through so much of their life without just even someone shaking their hand or, or anything. And they were blown away that she's doing this. They're like, why is she doing this? She could get leprosy. 
Why are these people doing this? This is crazy. Why would they do this? So block by block by block, they had to destroy and take away what they knew and to replace it with something. But at the end, part of this book is he talks about, they noticed one day that Mother Teresa had really deformed feet. Okay, I know there's a lot of talk about feet today. It's not intentional. It just, just kind of coincidentally happened, all right? But Mother Teresa's feet were really deformed. And they were, they were kind of interested in the story, like as how this to happen, because it's something they had never heard about, about Mother Teresa before, that she had these deformed feet. Well, come to find out, it wasn't something, some birth defect, or it wasn't something like that that happened. That many of you probably know that Mother Teresa had this ministry of giving shoes to the poor kids and people that lived in India around them that didn't have it. It was this big shoe ministry that she always did. And so what they would do is she would live off of what was left. What no one wanted is what she would take. And a lot of times they, would, they said that the, the shoes that she would wear, they were too small. And a lot of times she would be wearing two left shoes or two right shoes. Because it was all that there was. Sometimes they didn't even match. and They weren't even the same size. And so she went through most of her life wearing shoes like this. And over the time and over years, it actually deformed her feet because she didn't have proper shoes. Serving. It's her inward bend had become outwardly bent because she was serving, because she was following what God had called her to. Now, I know having, wearing shoes that don't fit and all that, it doesn't sound like a very great, glamorous life. But if you think about the legacy and you think about what Mother Teresa did through this serving to humbling herself to be low, she actually is great. And that's exactly what the Bible is talking about in this passage of Scripture when he says that if you want to be great, you must be a servant. And Jesus is saying to us, he's like, I'm God, I'm King, I'm Messiah, and I have come to give you life. But through that, I have to first serve. And the same thing applies to us, that we have to be willing to do what God has called us and created us to do. Now, I know some of you are sitting there this morning, and you're like, yeah, but you understand, like, I don't really have any gifts or abilities or things like that. I don't have anything like that to offer. Yes, you do. Because God created you. You're here because God created you and God created you with a purpose and God created you with a plan for your life. Each and every one of us, he has given different talents, different abilities, and different things to use for the work of his kingdom. And some of those gifts look really different than others. You know, some people when they think about ministry and they think about serving and they think about, you know, doing things like that in the church, they always think up front. They always think about stuff that happens up here. But the reality is, is probably 80% or 85% of the work of the church actually doesn't even happen in this room. It happens elsewhere. And so God has created each and every one of you with, with unique gifts and unique abilities to bring to the table so that, as that scripture said, that we put the whole together, that we can accomplish great things in life and for God's kingdom. You know, you know, I stand up here, you know, each and every week. And so this is more of an upfront, you know, gift that God gave me, the ability to, to speak and the ability to teach. But, you know, there's, there's gifts that are sometimes even more important than that. My wife has this great ability and this great gift of discernment. It's amazing. She just knows everything. And she'll say sometimes, she'll be like, oh, I think, you know, 
you know, something maybe going on with this person or something. She's like, I don't know. I just, you know, and, and, and it doesn't look like there's anything. You haven't heard anything. And you're like, nah, I don't know. It, she's always right. Because she has this great gift of discernment, and she understands it. She has this great gift to understand when someone's in need. I can't tell you the times that we've sat in church, and, and someone has, you know, and she's like, man, I really need to pray for that person. Or, you know, they're going, and sure enough, she's right every time. She's, she's, you know, she's got it. She discerns, and that's a great gift to have. It's important, but it's not something that's up front. You may not ever see her come up here and do anything, but that gift God gave her to use so that she could minister to people before they even know they need it sometimes. Before they even be willing to admit that, that I need help, that she's, God has given her this ability to, to sense that and understand that and to reach out and to begin to help those people through those situations and through those things that are happening in their lives. And, and similarly, God has given each and every one of us gifts so that you can use those gifts for the work. And if we think about all of our gifts and we think about all that as a body, You know, somebody's got to be the feet. Somebody's got to be the ears. There's got to be eyes. There has to be toes. There has to be fingers. There has to be all of these things, all these components that make up the whole of the body. And when the body isn't whole, it can't function the way it was created to function. You know, my my grandfather um, lost his arm before I was born, his right arm in a, in a commercial fishing accident. My family on that side are commercial fishermen. And the, the machine that pulls the nets in had gotten a little bit hung, and he knew better when he did it, but he was trying to quickly get it so they didn't lose the catch, and it, it yanked him through, and so he lost his arm. And he was right-handed, and he lost his right arm. So he had to go through this, this school and go through all these things to, to learn how to be able to do things that you and I never even think about. And when I was a kid, I used to be amazed at how he did these things. And I would try to do them, and he would try to teach me, and it was just not happening. Things like tying your shoe. Things that you never think of. Buttoning a shirt, right? Because when the body isn't complete, when the body isn't whole, then it makes doing things difficult because not everyone is doing, not every part is pulling it's weight. If, if a person is blind and they can't see, it makes it really difficult for them to navigate in unfamiliar situations, right, without assistance. And the list goes on and on and on and on that we could use as examples this morning. But the point is, is that God has called and equipped each and every one of us to be that part. And so we have to get in the game, so to speak, and we have to become a part of what God's doing and to play the role that he's called us to do. And that brings us to point number three this morning. God does amazing things in church when everyone does their part. God will do amazing things when every part does its part. You know, it's like a symphony, if you've ever gone and you've heard, you know, like the, the London Symphony or some of these famous symphonies across the world, it, it's amazing how all these people come together and, they, and, and the, the sounds and the things they produce. It's just absolutely amazing to listen to. But, you know, if, if the tuba players and half the violinists decided not to show up, it would completely change how that piece sounded when they played it because they didn't have all the pieces that they needed to make the song 
what it was created to be. You know, when I when I lived in Australia a few years ago, we were we were doing this 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 project to um, in in our creative department of our church to talk about there. We were talking about the the importance and the influence that music has on us. When like in a, in the case of like a movie or a television show, you know that like seventy five percent of your emotional response to what you see in a movie is based on the soundtrack. The music, more than the dialogue, the cameras, the action, more than any of that. It's actually the soundtrack that moves you emotionally and ties you in to what's happening. So what we did was we took all these famous scenes from all these different movies and we changed the soundtrack to them to show the importance that music really does play on on our emotional bits. So one of the things that we took was, you remember that movie, The Notebook? That, that chick flick movie, you know, with whatever their names are, you know, and it's like raining and they run and meet each other, you know, one of those Nicholas Sparks novel things. And, you know, they run and meet each other in the rain and it's just supposed to be this, you know, this great romantic scene of them, you know, running to meet each other after all this time, you know, in the rain and whatever. So we took that scene, there's this great underscore in that scene of the movie, and we took it out and we replaced it with The Entertainer. And what's funny is the scene that emotionally before, if you saw it the way it was created, it, even if you just watched that scene, it's kind of, you know, it, it stirs a little bit of emotion in you, even without having the buy-in from the entire rest of the movie. But all of a sudden, when you put that in there, it looked like something like that was supposed to be funny. Because what was put underneath it made it funny. You know? And so that's how important... The symphony, that's how important everyone coming together to do their part. It takes the soundtrack, but it also takes the actors, and it takes the cameras, and it takes the dialogue and the script. It takes all of these things working together to make this thing work. You know, imagine if you went to the movies, you know, and you know how different Star Wars would be without Darth Vader music? Dum, 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 right? Imagine if it was like, I don't know, something different. Something sappy. You know, like everybody's doing on Facebook now, the Celine this, the Celine Dion, you know, my heart will go on from the Titanic. Imagine if Darth Vader is walking down the hall to that, near, far, wherever you are. That would be ridiculous, right? You would laugh at Darth Vader. It wouldn't have the impact that, you know, when I was a kid and you watch, you know, Star Wars and you hear that, don't, you know, my little boys watch that and they're still like, don't, 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 because it just sticks with you in the way he walks, you know, with that thing. It just, the whole thing coming together makes it work. And the same thing is true in church and the same thing is true, is true in our lives. God has called each and every one of us with a purpose, with a plan, and he's given you the abilities to take what he's given you and to put it and invest it in his kingdom, in his work. And when we all do that, it's amazing what God can and will do. You know, growth isn't measured by the size of the building or the size of the budget or all of these things that man wants to put you know, we want to put our success stories on. 
But God actually looks at success in his, of, of the ministry, of, of success of what we're doing as a church, as in how hearts and lives are transformed through an encounter with Jesus Christ. That's what God is going to judge us on. That's what God is going to say, are we doing what we are meant to be doing? Are we who we are called to be? And that's called seeing fruit develop. You know, you can have... $10 million budget, and you could have 10,000 people in your church, and if no one's life is transformed through relationship with Jesus Christ, and all you did was have a big meeting. But on the flip side of that coin, the way God looks at it is if you have a church, a meeting in a living room with five people, and nobody gave a dime there, but somebody's life was transformed then God's super excited and super happy about that. Just like two weeks ago, we had these ladies get saved during a women's Bible study and another one this week. That's the kind of thing that God is going to judge us on. Are we taking his message and allowing people to have a divine encounter with Jesus Christ? That's what God judges us on. And the only way that we can do that is if all of us do what we're called to do. If the ladies that run that Bible study... You know, if they hadn't stepped out and done what God had equipped them to do, from the top to the bottom, from bringing the snacks to somebody picking out the Bible study to carrying that out, if those ladies, all of them that are involved in that, and then the ones that showed up, that wrapped their arms around these ladies and began to speak truth into their lives, if those people didn't do that, guess what? There's no divine encounter with Jesus. Why? Because it takes the whole. Nothing that happened in those ladies' lives happened in this room. It happened because God's people did what they were called, what they were equipped, and what they were gifted to do. And the results are transformed hearts and transformed lives because that's what God has called us to. That's what God has called us to do, what has called us to be and who he wants us to be. And you can think that your gifts, you can think that your place, you can think that what you do is insignificant, but God sees differently and God thinks differently than you and I do. God wants you to play your part that he created you to do. What is my part? What do you love? What stirs you? What, what drives you? What, what has God given you? What are you good at? I'm not really good at anything. You're good at something. Whatever you find, the Bible says, to, to do, to do it for the glory of God. You know, some of us can be the greatest ministers that we can be at work just simply by being who God called us to be. It takes the whole part of the body to make it work. And we have to be a church. That part of our vision has to be that we move people from just being attenders to people being contributors. Because God didn't call you, God didn't create you to just come sit in a church and sing songs and listen to somebody talk. Now, he gives us that so that we can equip others, that we can come in, that we can have fellowship, that we can bear our burdens with one another and lift those burdens up, the Bible says. Lift one another up to encourage one another. But he's called each and every one of you and equipped each and every one of you. So this morning I ask you to take 
the record of your heart, to take record of your mind. Are you just an attender or are you a contributor? And God's called us all to be contributors. And to be contributors, that means we put our life in the game. It means we find a place to get involved, that we find a place that we can minister, that we get involved in that sense, that we find people that we can love, as, as, as we talked about last week. And then as we talked about the first week, if we want to move to being a, a, just an attender, to being a contributor, to being a part of what God's doing, and God also calls us to trust him with our finances and to sow seed into God's kingdom. That's an important part of being in the family of God. Is that God says, I want you to trust me with your finances. I want you to trust me with your heart. I want you to trust me with your gifts. I want you to trust me with your life. And if we're willing to then in turn say, yes, God, I want what you want for me. Yes, God, I want to follow the path that you have for me. Then the life and the path that Christ calls us to means that we have to go all in, that it can't just be part. It has to be the whole. The same way that he took the whole of your sin and not just the part. He wants the same thing back from you and I. So this morning, as you search your heart, are you just an attender or are you a contributor? And if you're just an attender this morning, then I challenge you this morning to get into the game and to be a contributor. God, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word this morning. God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. God, we thank you for what you have given to each and every one of us. And it's love and it's hope, mercy and grace that our sin, not in part, but the whole was nailed to that cross and we bear it no more this morning and we thank you for that. And we rejoice this morning, Lord, with those that have, that have given their heart to Christ and those that are New in this, God, and they're, 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 they're starting to get into the game, God. They're starting to be contributors. And God, this morning I pray as we search our collective hearts and our minds and where we're at, God, that we would look and to see, are we just attenders or are we actually contributors? Are we contributing to the work that you're doing and what you want to accomplish in us and through us and among us? And God, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be stirred, that we would move to what you want us to be to who you want us to be, to what you called and to what you created us to be. And this morning, before we go any further and do anything else, with everybody's head bowed and their eyes closed this morning, we ask, we talk about being a part of God's family, and we talk about being a part, and we talk about these, these, even these ladies that over the last two weeks that have given their heart to Christ, and maybe, maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you've never actually made that commitment to make Christ Lord of your life. To have that divine moment where you said like, God, today is the day that I want to be in covenant relationship with you. God, I want to surrender my life. I've never actually surrendered my life in its totality to you. And God, today I want to surrender my heart. I want to surrender my life and to pick up and to take up what you would have for me in the life that you would have for me. And if you're here this morning and you've never done that, we're not here to call you out. We're not here to embarrass you. I'd just like for you to slip your hand up this morning so that we can pray for you, that you would say, today's the day that I would like to surrender my life to Christ, to commit my life to Christ. I've never done that in its totality. And today I want to take the opportunity to meet God and to surrender my heart and to surrender my life to him. 
And if that's you this morning, as everyone's heads bowed and everyone's eyes closed, just simply slip your hand up, slip it back down, and we're going to pray, and we're going to believe, and we're going to ask yes to see that hand. Thank you. God bless you. If there's anybody else here this morning, I want to take just a minute and, and allow you the opportunity to meet and encounter Jesus this morning. For some of you, it'll be the first time. Yes, I see two more hands. Anybody else this morning? I'll give you just a moment longer before we pray. Say, Pastor, today's the day. I want to meet Jesus. I want to surrender my life to Christ. I see that hand too. Thank you. Four people raise their hands to surrender their life. That's five. Another hand. I'm going to give just a minute longer. I feel like God's not done with. There's somebody else that, yes, I see another hand. Six. Anybody else this morning before we finish? Father God, this morning, we thank you, Lord. God, we thank you for the gift of salvation. God, we thank you that as your word says that you bore our shame, that you bore our guilt, that you bore our sin on that cross, that you were nailed, that you were beaten, that you were, that you were killed. And your blood shed so that we could have life and that we could have life more abundantly. That we could walk in the freedom of knowing that as that song declared this morning, that our sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross. And we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. And this morning, God, we we thank you for these that have, have, have raised their hands to surrender their heart to you. And God, this morning, we believe with them that you're going to come in, that you're going to clean them, God, that you're going to set them apart, that you're going to make them whole, that you're going to make them new. And God, we pray, Lord, that that your grace, Lord, be realized in their lives and in the people that surround them. And God, that their life would become a light in this darkness. And God, we thank you, Lord, that your grace and your sin, er, er, your grace and your mercy covers all of our sin. Not just what we've done in the past and and not just what we've done prior to today, but God, this journey that we go on with you, that we're still going to have issues, we're still going to have failures, we're still going to have our weaknesses. And God, we thank you, Lord, that that your grace covers all of our sin when we invite you to come in and to take control. And God, we thank you this morning with these that have raised their hand. We give you praise, Lord, and we rejoice with all of heaven this morning as one more has come to know you. And we thank you in the mighty name of Jesus, we pray.